0: Welcome to episode seven of the Progression Health podcast. I'm here with Dr. Tony Hampton and Tony's just going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his work.
1: Well, thank you uh, just for allowing me to be with you today. Uh, today. It's really my passion to help people uh, walk towards their ideal state. And we focus on diet and nutrition in the world I live in. And I'm a family doctor and I did get some additional training in obesity medicine. Um, And I I just integrated into my practice. So I'm not like an obesity doc and that's all I see. There's so many people who need help with obesity that I just integrated into my family practice practice. I do have additional roles in my health system, which is called Advocate Aurora Health System in Chicago, Illinois. Um, It's also a health system that's in not only Illinois, but Wisconsin. And I'm a regional medical director. So I have the opportunity to lead other, uh, clinicians as well. Um, but very passionate about lifestyle and, and that passion, uh, I had a chance to utilize it in my previous role as the medical director for our operating system. And we did things like, um, start healthy living programs where we get in front of anywhere from a hundred to 200 patients or so talk about lifestyle and how they could use that to improve their health conditions and reverse them. We also have a food pharmacy at one of our hospitals, Trinity Hospital led by Richard Johnson, that's their president and we, we give food out, but we also, with the caveat that we have to explain what to do with the cauliflower, because uh, some people are not familiar with that. Um, I am one of the lead physicians for our diabetes uh, prevention program. And, and what I did is I authored a book, Fix Your Diet, Fix Your Diabetes, because there was a lot of gaps in my patient's knowledge. And when you have a 15 or 30 minute clinic visit, there's no time. So I I authored that book to give more information, which also led to the Protecting Your Nest podcast, my YouTube channel. And my goal was to have tools for my patients and obviously reach more people. And uh, another way I do that is through the diet doctor. We have a monthly column uh, that I'm privileged to write and I use my nest and rope acronym as my foundation. Which is the root cause of why we get sick. And then I write articles around that. In fact, I just released one that talked about relationships and how important they are. And, and the last thing I'll mention is uh, some training in functional medicine and nutrition. So I'm a student again. My wife thinks I'm crazy, <laughs> but I'm a student and I'm learning about uh, nutrition, functional medicine, and, and, and adding that to my clinical practice and to the videos that I'll be making in the future. So that's, that's pretty much. My story.
0: Great, yeah. That's that's a lot uh, to work with. Um, so, what led you to working in obesity medicine? What was the, kind of the catalyst for that? Obviously, uh, there's a bit of a not a bit, but there's a huge rise in obesity. I feel like the general population isn't aware of it. It's like I think is it something like forty percent of people in the US are are obese, not At just least. overweight. Yeah,
1: and and then when you um, and I think. Um, um, in my training. Um, I think it was by the year, it's amazing because the years are going back, 2030, it would be, you know, more than 50%. If you go to communities of color, and I do serve a community of color, um, you know, they're already at 50%, if not, you know. So I think you're looking at those communities, it may be at 70% or higher. So it is out there. Um, so for me, it was kind of a no brainer. Once you understand that the root cause of why we get sick um, is related to things that are lifestyle related in some cases, then you say, well, what's the thing that's hurting us the most? And I know I remember learning that at, in, at some point, uh, the number one cause of preventable death was um, smoking, but it, it's flipped now to where obesity is the number one cause of preventable death. So if we're able to help our patients with obesity, you could and I think it's like over 30 percent of the preventable causes of death are smoking. Over 30 percent are obesity. So just put those two together. That's 60 percent of the causes of preventable death are those two things. So my as a clinician, of course, I'm going to tell people not to smoke. But man, if I can get 60 percent to just take care of those two things, we're doing better. So, so, so for me, I wanted to learn more about obesity. That's why I became board certified in obesity medicine. And I also or understood that metabolic health, metabolic syndrome, you know, for those who are not aware, you know, your waist circumference, uh, your uh, your blood pressure, your your blood glucose, your triglycerides, and your HDL, those five things, three of if you have three uh, out of five that are not normal, you you're considered metabolically unhealthy. This is the the more shocking stat, which I'm sure you've heard, is that. Only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. Um, that's one out, one out of eight. So that means that most of us are not metabolically healthy. So, and well, how do you become metabolically healthy? There's no pill for that. Uh, some people are, are you metformin helpful? But, but at the end of the day, it's a lifestyle change. So, so as a clinician, I think it's the, the most responsible thing we can do is focus on what makes people sick. And if we know metabolic disease is like arguably 80% of all chronic medical conditions, hypertension, uh, stroke, cancer, um, dementia, uh, and we can go on and on, hypertension, diabetes, I mean, the list is long. Um, Then we need to focus on those areas. And the best way to do that is to help people lose weight through the various uh, approaches that we take.
0: Yeah, that reminds me, of things I've heard before, like I think in Houston, it's one city that's particularly high with obesity, something like 50 or 60%, which is like, you know, if that's the culture there, if, if everybody is obese, then that becomes a new norm. And your relationships, like you spoke of, you know, it's like so impactful. Um, and another like kind of saying I heard was um I think it's like genetics is the the gun, but then like your lifestyle pulls the trigger. So yeah, that's like an interesting one to consider. Um So obesity, you know, when I was growing up anyway, uh, obesity was thought of like, you know, a lack of motivation or kind of laziness that was the cause, but it's been classified as a disease now, similar to like hypertension, um, you know, cancer or, or diabetes. So type two diabetes. Um, So uh, can you tell us a little bit about why it was reclassified as a, a disease and then what difference that makes to a person with this disease?
1: Well, I think um, that it's important that we recognize that people in general want to be healthy. Uh, People in general are not lazy. Um, It's the advice. So if we give advice that doesn't help people or doesn't understand why people struggle, then we will look at the person and then say to them that you didn't, you didn't follow the advice. So if you think about what's happened in the past, we've given advice, like if you look at a food pyramid, for example, and you look at the foundation of a food pyramid, you'll see a lot of grains, you'll see a lot of uh, um, you know, things like uh, uh, rice, pasta, potatoes, um, cereal, and the question becomes, is that should that be the foundation of our diet, right? And if I follow that, will I, will I, would I be metabolically healthy? And the answer is for most Americans, no. Uh, most Americans have reduced the consumption of meat. And if you look at a graph, you'll see that the consumption, as the consumption of meat has gone down, the obesity rate has gone up uh, as the consumption Rate of uh, uh, meat has gone down, you know. So when you think about that, it, it just it just tells you, well, are we given the right advice? And if we're given the wrong advice, should we be blaming the person who is hearing that advice? So I think I I think that what people need besides um, good advice, good information is we have to recognize how hard it is to change. Right. So. So the other fact I just wanted to mention is this: this need to coach. I think you're familiar with that. Uh, People need coaching um, because we all struggle to change, Um, and they need uh, people who are going to kind of help them to walk through this this journey. So I think, I think just in in general, I just want to emphasize: people do not want to be failures, and 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 people say, "Well, they're not motivated." Well, since I've kind of shifted my practice to focus on lifestyle, Uh, I see successes that are just kind of like a daily thing. And there are days like, uh, maybe three Mondays ago, um, I had 22 patients and 11 of the 22 had weight loss that they've achieved. And, you know, I could go, you know, years before I could even make a statement like that in my previous approach, which was, Focused on medications, procedures, and surgeries, but once I shifted to lifestyle, um, so I think the um, I think some of the focus to obesity was related to related to what I said earlier, which is um, we we recognized that it was a huge cause of preventable death, and 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 once we understood that, we said, well, man, we need to really focus on this, and and it is, and it's so related to all of these metabolic conditions, and and and. So we have to give that special attention, and these folk need special um, um, help. And we got so we got people being trained. Unfortunately, we only have a, a little bit over four thousand docs in the country in the United States who are trained to treat obesity medicine. So that needs to change. But so I think it was just this need to really focus on this condition, and 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 when, when people when docs and researchers see this correlation between obesity and all of these metabolic uh, medical problems, Uh, they realize, and they realized that was the root cause. I think the focus shifted in that direction.
0: Yeah. Um, the whole kind of medical system needs to to shift. It's like, it's set up to make money almost. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very sad because you see how many people are dying. 60% of people are dying of preventable causes. Um, just out of curiosity, what is your thoughts on, on bariatric surgery? Um, because I've listened to like talks and like endocrinologists have said it's the most effective way to treat obesity. Like, um, obviously there's high risk that comes with it, but I'm just curious, I know lifestyle medicine is really important and effective as well and lower risk. What would be your opinion on that?
1: Yeah. Well, um, when you're trained, that's the beauty of getting training in, uh, obesity medicine is that you remove the fear of using medication now, nobody can afford you know try to go get sex senda. if you just if anybody's listening just type in sex senda, uh for i think that was a derivative of it's similar to victosa for diabetes but if you just type that in and i wouldn't be surprised if uh, go to like good rx you know type in sex senda. probably gonna cost you you know over a grand a month or some crazy number seriously so, but as a family doctor who fears medication because of all the things, the fin-fin craziness that causes heart disease in the past, we were afraid of these medicines. So the good thing about training is that you remove your fear of using medicines, which do work, uh, shouldn't be the first step. You remove your fear of bariatric surgery, which does work, shouldn't be your first step, right? And all the bariatric docs are gonna make you, you know, lose weight before you have surgery. My thing is if you lose weight for the surgery, why just keep doing the same thing that made you lose weight and see how that goes before you jump to bariatric surgery. In my practice, and I'm an obesity doc, I probably have less than 10 people who have had bariatric surgery. You know, I have like a, I probably got less than 10 people who are taking medicine because when you do a, when you restrict, I tend to encourage carb restriction for those who can tolerate it. Um, I find that people don't get hungry. So, so the thing that you're taking the medicines for, or the reason why you may have to have surgery because you maybe have an addiction to food, et cetera, um, you, you may not. Now, having said that, would I tell a patient not to have bariatric surgery? Of course not. I, mean, I would tell them, yeah, if you need that, if we've tried these other interventions and, and you have struggled, then it is the most effective way to lose weight in the short term. There's no question all the data supports that and you will reverse diabetes Uh, literally after the day after surgery. I mean, it's like you're, you're, it just gets, it just goes to normal, like very quickly. However, uh, the psychological impact is significant. However, the risk for having a repeat surgery is significant. It may be in a 30% or higher percentage of people. I mean, one out of three may have to have a repeat surgery, right? So people say it's easier to do bariatric surgery. It's actually harder. Uh, it forces you to eat a certain way. You're at risk for complications. Uh, psychologically, it's going to be difficult. So it's easier, in my opinion, to do the lifestyle. Uh, but I think that uh, we have tools in our toolkit, and what we want are more clinicians who know all the different tools. In other words, if somebody's struggling, I need to. They need to know about Dr. Robert Cyrus. They need to know about Dr. Joan Ifland if they have a processed food addiction. So if we don't deal with their addiction, then they're not going to be successful. And we'll say, oh, they're not motivated, going back to your other point. No, they're motivated, but they have a processed food addiction. So treat them like an alcoholic. Get them into Dr. Joan Influence Reset community so they can listen to Zoom meetings as often as they need to. And and then you will support them through it. And they may have this addiction or this struggle for the rest of their lives. But to then point to them and say, no, you're a failure because you have to have bariatric surgery, or you're a failure because you're not motivated, but they have a processed food addiction. We, we have to start looking inward at how our system is set up. And if our system is not set up to support people, we can't blame people. We have to say, how can we make our system, all these social determinants of health, whether it's financial, you know, access to care, et cetera. If we don't address those, and that's our responsibility to address those things and work in partnership with our patients. I think that's so that's why I'm totally okay with taking a patient to bariatric surgery surgery option if that's what they need, and there are some people that are so sick if we don't give them that option, they may not make it through the next year, you know, so we have to have all of those tools in our toolkit
0: brilliant answer, yeah, yeah um, so it's kinda, it kind of comes back to the individual and depending you know uh what exactly suits them um, yeah. yeah, so. Kind of in relation to how uh, obesity is now a disease, would you talk a little bit about weight stigma and like how it can be among like the general population, but also among like professionals as well? You're talking about kind of shifting the mindset or shifting the approach to obesity. Yeah. So that, I think that's something that people, it's like almost like unconscious that we have a weight, there's a stigma around, you know, weight.
1: Yeah, it's it's a horrible uh, reality in that we may meet somebody and in that moment of meeting them, we have not seen their journey. So I may see somebody who is you know, hundred pounds overweight. Oh, by the way, doc, you didn't know it, but maybe two years ago they were 200 pounds overweight. And I may look at them and say, oh, they're lazy. They're not motivated. They don't care about themselves. So some of the stigma comes from not understanding people's uh, journey. Some of it comes from, um, us not understanding how difficult it is. Just like going back to the smoking, you know, if I have a, uh, issue with smoking, some have said that, uh, smokers have, uh, it's harder to stop smoking than crack and heroin. Now that doesn't make sense to my brain, but that's how addictive smoking is. So, so am I then to look at that person who's a smoker and, and without that knowledge, I'm going to, stigmatize them and judge them. Are you out your mind for being a smoker? But we have to, and maybe I became a smoker because like, I think of my wife's dad, who was a, he's a vet and you had smoking breaks. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the culture created the smoker, right? And then we then blame the, uh, the, the, the person, just like with our dietary approach, the dietary guidelines, in my opinion, creates obesity. So then we blame the victim. So I think, we stigmatize people because we've lived in a world where this certain image of what's healthy is the only image we have. Thankfully, things are changing. I mean, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I watch a lot of TV with my wife's dad these days. And as I'm sitting with him, he, I see the commercials and I now see uh, people who are not at their so-called ideal body weight in commercials. I now see people who are not the perfect model in commercials, right? So I think we're, our society is starting to first recognize it's good for business. (laughs) It's good to sell things to people who need it and sell it by using people who look like them. Right. But I think that, so I think that's helpful, but, but this is, this is as much of, we're all a reflection, like part of my nest and rope, my, my acronym, right? So the E in the rope talks about uh, your emotions and your life experiences and So if my life experiences have been such that it has trained my brain to look at people a certain way, um, then it's gonna be hard to separate those two things as a professional. Uh, So part of our job is to make sure that professionals are trained to understand the things that uh, have first led to us having this way of thinking our life experiences. But just as importantly, You know, how can I create an environment for a patient so that when they come to see me, they don't feel that stigma, they feel welcome. That means I have a scale that's in a non-public area that is designed for a 400-pound person. I have a seat in my waiting room that is designed for a person who uh, can actually sit in the seat uh, and not feel uncomfortable. I have gowns that are designed for people who are uh, uh, at a heavier weight. And I have a team of people who know how to offer that gown to a patient without having to make that an obvious thing that we're doing, that we're giving you a certain type of gown. The patient will obviously know, but I think we just need to remind our teams that we're all biased, none of us are perfect, and we have to always ask myself at the end of the day, that I treat people like I want to be treated. And it takes ongoing education because we slip back into that. Particularly when people are struggling and we're trying to help them and, and they, they kind of come up with what people would consider excuses. I don't think there's, it's not an excuse if I'm in an abusive relationship, that's the R in the rope, right? Relationships. And I just wrote an article with The Diet Doctor I just released um, in October, the first uh, day of October. And if I, if you're in an abusive relationship, in my article, I talked about Nancy. Nancy has um, two kids, a boyfriend, none of who work, and she's trying to manage all of this. So she's going to stop at a fast food place, right? Because it's quick and easy. So do I then blame Nancy, uh, who's overweight, uh, for eating that fast food? And oh, by the way, her boyfriend doesn't want her to lose weight for whatever reason. So now she, so if I don't address that relationship issue and don't get him in the office and kind of, you know, peel the onion, and then I'm instead blaming her for not being motivated and she lives in a food desert, then then shame on me. So I think as clinicians, we have to look inward and say, am I stigmatizing people? And if I am, I need to fix that. And, and also they're struggling. That's why I have this nest and rope because those are the root causes you know, exercise, you don't move your body. Well, how can I move my body if I'm 400 pounds? So maybe I have to maybe just focus on diet first. So I lose a little bit weight, I have more energy, more motivation. So I think what we have to do is retrain our clinicians. And and what we don't do is we, as we echoed earlier, we manage disease very well. We fix things with surgeries and procedures very well. Getting to the root cause and preventing illness is where we need some, Training. That's why I had to go back to school and get a master's in nutrition. And, fun- and more importantly, functional medicine, because functional medicine practitioners, they peel the onion, they peel the onion until they get to the root cause. So, so I'll probably integrate all of this into how I practice and teach. But the goal is re educating us so that because we're good people too. There's no doc who's given, who's doing the PMS, my wife, the procedures medicine surgery. I'll make a video about that. <laughs> they, they have PMS, right? So they're not bad people. They just—that's how they were trained, and they so they were trained that people are not motivated. They're they're non-compliant. They're lazy. They they don't say lazy. They just say non-compliant. But that's that's it's the same thing. So we have to retrain them to think differently.
0: Yeah, that what everything you said reminds me. You know, in relation to stigma, about saying it's like, um, let he who who uh, hasn't sinned cast the first stone, something along those lines, and it's like you know, if you look at, if instead of looking outward and saying, oh, look at that person and th- this other person, it's like, you know, what are you doing yourself that could be causing the issue? Um, so uh, blame is, is something that I'm realizing is really big. Could you talk just a little bit about how we blame other people and, you know, if there's any use in blaming people for their condition?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I try to encourage my patients to have some accountability and Uh, things like that. And sometimes I think the blaming is a little bit of a cop out because it it's like, it does give you an explanation. It doesn't require that you peel back the onion. And, and, and my brain works differently. I, instead of thinking about blame, I think that there's always reason it's going back to that root cause there's reasons why we do what we do. And, um, so instead of blaming people, my job is to you know, ask them, you know, what, what are we trying to fix? So, and I do this in leadership too. So, so what are we trying to fix? And I've shared this previously in a podcast or so. So what's the problem? And, and then I say to them, what would you like to change about the problem? And then, and then I say, well, uh, how would you change it? And then if they come up with a solution, I give them. I say, let's do that, and then set a time frame. And then I make them accountable by finding the answer. You know, let's let's talk in a couple of weeks, a month, or whatever. If they don't have a solution, then I become the smart low carb doctor, and I say, oh, it sounds like what you're struggling with. I have a solution for it. Oh, you struggle with exercise? Well, um, oh, by the way, um, you can do maybe some high intensity training with some bands safely like Dr. Ben Kikio does, who does his smart routine. So it's 15 minutes twice a week. Do you have 15 minutes twice a week you can dedicate it to exercise? And that's all I need you to do. Maybe walking and, you know, get them going on something, right? So this, so I, I look at them and instead of blaming them, I just try to find a path that is palatable. I'm thinking about all the social determinants of health. I'm thinking about all the things that they bring to my attention, like I'm struggling in my marriage or whatever. And then I, so I don't spend a lot of time blaming because what are you going to accomplish? Most people become defensive if you start to blame, right? It's like in a relationship that happens, in my clinical practice it happens, when I'm talking to physicians as a leader. So when I give them the opportunity to solve their own problem, what's the problem, You you know, and they solve it themselves, it's it's nobody's becoming defensive. Most people have solutions. They just need a coach <laughs> to guide them through the journey. And sometimes I'm a mentor and I I give, you know, here's what I've done in the past, and I mentor them through my experiences, but but most of my job is uh coaching, which gets to another point, which is you got to teach clinicians how not to blame people and to become coaches. Now we refer people to expert coaches, obviously. But we got to do a little coaching in that office um, so that so that they know that they have a partner who can walk with them. So, so that's kind of how I, when I think about blaming and things, I, I put that to the side because I, I don't know people who want to fail. Nobody wants to fail. They just haven't, they can't see the forest for the trees because they've struggled. And they've struggled for a lot of different reasons. And so my job is to, you know, get back to let's understand here's the struggle. I'm sorry, you're struggling. We've all been given a deck of cards and my deck of cards are different than yours. I grew up in a tough neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. I can't use that as my crux. I have to like, I have to say, okay, that's my cards. And if I'm inspired by somebody from that same environment, which is why we need diversity as we teach these messages, then maybe uh, I'll realize it's gonna be harder But I find that people who have had those struggles and those life experiences are even better at achieving more, because they can't imagine going back to that. So they're even more inspired. It's just like an older person in a master's program for nutrition. I'm gonna make sure I do a good, first of all, I got other stuff distracting me as opposed to the the 20 year old who may only be doing a master's in nutrition, but you know, whatever or the 23 you know, year old. So, so I, think, I think for me, it's like, I, I, I use those life experiences to really help people to use that as their driving force and say, man, this is not who you are. You're on your way to something different and you're gonna use those lessons learned to be even better than you ever imagined. And you just have to help them to see that. And then when they fall and struggle, you say fall and struggle is normal. Do you know anybody that's ever stopped smoking the first time? It's very few people, they struggle. And then eventually they, they wake up one day and they're not a smoker anymore. They're an ex-smoker self. So. so that's kind of, so we're not blaming anybody for nothing because life is hard, but it can also be easy if we have the perspective of how to learn from these lessons and not use them as negativity in our lives.
0: Brilliant answer, yeah. I feel as though when we blame somebody, we oppress them and we kind of just like, Almost kind of handcuff them and say, you know, you're bad, or we do it to ourselves as well, um, and that's outside of our control. Then, if if we're labelled as bad, where do you go from there? Whereas we're not bad; it's just like life is really hard at times, and it can be easier, like you say. Um, so you're making me think of uh, motivational interviewing, which is something I'm learning about, and you're collaborating with people as opposed to being. I love the analogy I heard recently. It's like uh, you know when you're coaching somebody you're the advisor to the president so that the client is the president and you are simply presenting, um, you know, consequences to the the decisions they make, but ultimately the client is going to decide, you know, what changes they make to their life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you're just making me think of like Dwayne Wade, the basketball players from, yeah, I think he's from the South side of Chicago.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think so. That's right.
0: Yeah. And he, he obviously Chicago is a tough place to grow up, but like, you know, he he proves that you can really be successful if you stick to your your kind of uh, if you are disciplined and you stick to you know the right things. Um, so, in terms of motivational interviewing and collaborating with a client, um, could you speak a little bit about that just uh, to let people yeah, know about motivational interviewing? I definitely
1: uh, learned motivational interviewing, and I do believe. In fact, I think that whole model—the guy who started it—was more from an alcohol addiction model and then they end up you know, coming up with that. Um, I, you know, It goes back to this tool in the toolkit. Um, I don't go to clinic and think about motivational interviewing in a way that it's not like some academic approach, right? And oh, a patient says this and you do that. It's more of a way of existing. And so I believe in it. I think it's very helpful and, and it's tool. So, so for anybody listening, I would say to them, if you learn these principles, your goal is to then figure out where you can integrate it into your practice. So one of the ones I uh, think about is the ORS, which is um, uh, an acronym because we love acronyms, right? And, uh, and so, you, so I know the O is for open-ended questions, right? So we ask open-ended questions, you know? And, and when you do that, you, um, you again, you don't put people on a defensive. You just, it's not yes or no, it's more, because you want them to talk and you want them to uh, share what's on their brain. And one of the things I learned as a clinician, I don't have all the answers. Um, so let the person, let the patient help me solve their problem. So I ask open-ended questions to kind of, um, you know, guide them. I think the A was for affirmations. Um, and, and some of that is just letting them know you appreciate that they're willing to, that they care enough about themselves to come to the clinic and, and ask for help and, uh, and that they are going to use you as a resource. So you kind of affirm what they're doing, uh, what they're trying to achieve. And and I think the thing a lot of clinicians struggle with is the R and the ORs, which is reflective listening. Right? So, uh, am I am I able to listen? And one of the things I do in leadership is I wait. Why am I talking? Uh, and I let people talk. And a lot of times uh, they talk too much, and that's okay. I may do a a, a, a in basket <laughs> uh, a message if it's if it's over the top, but but for the most part. I, I I I do ref, I I, re, I reflect and listen because I learn a lot. And The last one is um, I summarize what I think I heard during that interaction. Now there are tons of tools with uh, motivational interview, and I just gave one. Right, so imagine if I'm a clinician, and I have like I have about four or five of those tools in my brain. What's cool about that is that clinician is going to be more confident because one of the things we struggle with is how do I help a person in front of me without just writing a prescription, right? Well, you have to have tools. You have to have things in your brain. As I gave an example of how I helped solve problems, I let them solve problems. So if I have a tool in my brain, I can stand before uh, a clinician who may have been disrespectful to one of their team members. How do I have that, that, that con- crucial con- conversation in a way that honors me, them, and that team member that they were... Uh, not being respectful to. So I have an approach. And so what the motivational interviewing does is give clinicians an approach to how to deal with things. And that's why it's important to be a continuous learner because Dr. Ben Kikio on his little smart exercise routine, I didn't know about that six months ago. So now I have a tool to help the patient. I don't have time to exercise, doc. Well, 15 minutes twice a week, you can find that. So what you do is you keep learning and you, you put the tools in front of you, whether it's in your profession or in life, that'll help you. And you may have, and that tool may not even help you. It may help the person that's a family member who needs to hear that. And so that's why, we, that's why these podcasts are wonderful. That's why the YouTube videos are great. And, and we have to keep learning so that we will then have all of these tools and we can take them when we need them. Sometimes something will come to my mind, I learned like years ago, and I'm not even sure how it's still in my brain. And then you'll have that in that moment, when somebody shares something with you, you'll have something to offer them. So, so I really encourage clinicians who have not learned that approach to learn it, but don't overwhelm yourself. Just as you learn it, say which of these tools resonate with me the most and put those in your little bucket and then you can use them when you need to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of similar to that is like the work of Carol Rogers, the psychologist, and kind of just accepting yourself and the challenges you face. and. Um, I think motivational interviewing is kind of similar in that you're just, just hearing, you know, someone's story and, and hearing about where they're at and the challenges they face, because, you know, everyone's on their own journey. Um, yeah. So speaking of tools, you have the acronyms, the nest and rope. So will you just talk about that and, you know, they sound so practical and so useful, I think more people should use it. So yeah. yeah. How, how can people use it and what's it all about? Well,
1: well, it's a nice segue from what we just said, which is you have to keep being a learner right now. Before I started my, masters in nutrition and functional medicine, I actually, uh, was the nest was already formed in my brain. I already knew that, um, that part of it was important. The rope came later and all of it is the root cause of why we get sick. So if anybody were to search a functional medicine tree and look at the roots of it, you'd see these principles. And I, as a, a, you know, how do you get through medical school? You come up with acronyms <laughs> to remember this unlimited amount of information that you have to remember. So, so the nutrition, the nutrition, of course, is what and when you eat. So the when is like Dr. Jason Fong. sometimes you need to stop eating and I tend to eat uh, lunch and dinner. I don't eat breakfast most days. Sometimes I'll do it on a weekend um, and the, uh, you know, what to eat is going to vary i was a vegetarian for eight years i've been a low carb guy probably for the last eight years so but so what is going to depend on the individual since most of us are metabolically unhealthy uh and it's a you know i and we'll talk about this later but i think low carb is carb restriction is probably the fastest path to um controlling your weight so um, and I say that because if you use fat and protein as your primary fuel, what will happen is your protein, will, those amino acids from the protein can be converted to glucose. The fatty acids through beta oxidation can be converted to glucose and energy or ATP. So what happens is you, and it's on demand. So instead of putting all of this starchy stuff in my body, then my body which only can handle a teaspoon of sugar at a time, well, instead, instead of having to manage all of that extra sugar or glucose, I can let my body naturally do it with gluconeogenesis uh, to give me energy. So it's just a more efficient way and an easier thermostat to regulate things. That's one of the reasons why I tend to encourage carb restriction. Exercise, uh, you're, you're, you will be more metabolically healthy if you exercise in addition to eat well. And if you, and going to the S in the nest, less stress, more sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, that's stressful to your body. And if you have stress in general, you're gonna increase your stress hormones, things like cortisol. Cortisol will then lead to extra sugar. And again, you gotta do something with that sugar. And that extra sugar will ultimately lead to fat storage. The T is how we think. If we think negatively, you know, that's stressful. So we don't wanna be negative thinkers. And if we've had life traumas, the other T, the life traumas we have to address. So if we've been abused, uh, like uh, if we were previously a sex worker or something like that, we need to address those traumas and and make sure we uh, take take care of those. And then the you know the O and the P in the rope deal with avoiding things that harm us, organisms like COVID, uh, pollutants like our environment. Southside Chicago has a lot of pollutants and factories in, in the environment. And then the E is to protect our emotions and our life experiences in other words uh let's have emotions that serve us let's think about our life experiences sometimes our life experiences don't serve us in certain cultures there are certain foods that we eat because that's part of our life experience and our culture but some of those things don't serve us so we may have to reevaluate those things not necessarily eliminate them completely but if it's in your culture that you eat certain foods all the time with every meal and yet it's causing obesity. We have to reassess that. So, but the bigger message for anybody listening is, where do you have gaps? If those are the 11 cause, root causes of illness, and you're really good with exercise and diet, but your relationships are not great. So let's address the relationships. Uh, you know, are you exposing yourself to pollutants you shouldn't? Let's address that. It could be something as simple as a, you know, do I still drink water out of plastic bottles? I do. Uh, but that's something on my to-do list to get to a point where it's all filtered water and it's not, you know, plastic bottles. So we're all on a journey. Please do not think that myself <laughs> or my host here is uh, perfect in any way. We're still trying to get better in various aspects of our lives. We're all flawed and and not perfect and and, and also great at the same time. So, so I think that the nest in a rope reminds people these are the things I need to work on. Where do I have gaps? Let me work on the areas on weekend.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I love it. It's so simple. Um so in terms of exercise, what do you kind of recommend and what do you do yourself? Because I know you said uh you're in your fifties, but you look like yes. you're in your 30s. So yeah. I, <laughs> I feel that. like you have uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of good habits with exercise. So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. Well, my mom's cute, so maybe I got some jeans on my and <laughs> she would love for me to say that. But yeah, I think there, there's always some genetics, but I was, uh, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, you know um, you load the gun and then you have to, you know, pull the trigger. So the, the uh, lifestyle and our culture and those things pull the trigger sometimes in the wrong direction. But so prior to, I, I, I will admit I've been, I'm busy. So I, I use Dr. Bimbo Kikio's approach his smart exercise routine uh, because of my busyness. Now, Prior to doing that, which was maybe uh, three months prior to this recording, um, I, I used uh, a very simple approach where I did have access to a gym, but I was kind of hit or miss because we're in a pandemic and I tried to avoid that. So my routine was very simple. I did, um, I did my max number of push-ups, then I would do the same number of squats, then I would do lunges and then I would have a pull-up bar. The lunges would only be like maybe 20. And I, so, and I got to a point where I could do 80 pushups first set. then I would go 70, 60, 50. And I would do just as many squats. Then I do my lunges and probably 20, 20, 20, 20. And then I would do uh, a pull-up bar, which was impossible, but you know, I do as many as I could tolerate to failure. And then I, you know, so that was my routine. I would only do like those four things primarily. And I did that every other day for a couple of years. When I started doing Dr. Ben Kikio's smart routine uh, with the uh, bands, I don't have a, he has the total gym version and a real gym. What I found is that it was, I felt like I got more bang for my butt, but you know, it's like, you go to failure, you take that, you tear that muscle down, and then you do maybe seven or eight total exercises. And then what happens is you rest for two days. So now I'm only doing it twice a week, 15 minutes, twice a week. I walk, I try to stretch on most days and that's pretty much what I do. So, and, and what the gift of that approach, and I think a lot of approaches, like I have patients who, the gym is like a social thing for them. They're retired. They need to just do that because for them, that's like their thing. You know, they go there, it's social, they do the sauna. I would never tell somebody like that, that they need to do anybody's routine that's shorter. Um, When you have a practice with a lot of different types of patients who struggle just to do it, I like the 15 minutes twice a week with walking, with bands because it's safe and the walking's reasonable when it's not like 10 degrees in Chicago and it's not in the winter. And I think that, um, I think that that approach has, I've, I've gotten more people to do that because it's easy and simple. And I, and, and just as a general theme, I try to keep things rather it's nutrition, what we eat, uh, or how we exercise. My goal is to make it as easy as possible. So we do Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, that's when we cook Sunday. We make enough food for, uh, three days. And so we keep it simple, um, maybe two vegetables with dinner, with some type of animal. Uh, We try not to put flour, cornmeal or anything. And so we try to keep it simple. You don't have to eat but one vegetable if that's your thing, you know, you have to remove the fear of fat and meat and stuff like that. But once you get people comfortable with that and and they try it and then we see how it goes. And then if people need more support, you give them more support in terms of what they're eating or how they're exercising. But I love keeping it simple because when you're busy, uh, it becomes a burden almost. Uh, and although we should make time for these things, if I could be more efficient
0: and achieve a similar goal, that's a better approach. Yeah. I love that. Keeping it easy, keeping it simple. Yeah. And then people are so busy and, uh, you know, they might have some sort of trauma, like trauma could exist on a spectrum and, uh, that could really like inhibit their ability to, you know, focus and slow down and and be mindful and stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah, the, the T for trauma is, is very important as well. Um, huge. And then going on to, uh, kind of what we're tying. So, so the video I watched recently of, uh, how to achieve your weight loss goals. So that five tips, we'll kind of tying that back into what we talked about earlier about obesity as a disease. Um, I know a lot of people focus on weight loss, but do you think people should focus on weight loss, or what do you think of something like a weight neutral approach to health?
1: Yeah, um, and I, you know, I appreciate. I think that's the video I did with Dr. Joan jo, um, Dr. Uh, Joanne McManamy, uh, who I met at Low Carb USA, by the way, and it was kind of cool because she had followed me, and she uh, had lost one hundred and twenty-five pounds. Um, so should she focus on those 125 pounds? Probably not really. Um, we go back to metabolic health, which is what gives us a little flexibility in terms of the dietary approach we take is that we focus on metabolic health. So, so a person like her, if we were to say metabolic syndrome, again, how's your waist circumference? How's your blood pressure? How's your, how's your blood sugar? How's your triglycerides and HDL? If you're metabolically healthy, I'm comfortable with that. Now, if you're African-American, I may, if I think about weight and I look at BMI, maybe a BMI of 25 is too low. Maybe you're, you know, people say, I'm big boned. Well, that sounds funny, but it's actually true. Like if your wrist is big, you are big boned. And yes, you, if it's greater than seven inches, you should be allowed a higher BMI than the next person. If the BMI, and if you're Asian, you may have to have a BMI that's less than Uh, 25 or, you know, you have, so I think we think about metabolic health. We have labs we do that deal with metabolic health, rather than an insulin level, rather it's doing a coronary artery calcium score, rather it's an apolipoprotein B, rather it's a uric acid, bilirubin. I mean, I can go down the list of labs that you can check for metabolic health. And so I think that this approach of understanding, yeah, it's not about the weight, it's about, you know, what are your big goals? And I think Dr. Uh, Joanne suggested in her video, you know, what, you know, are you motivated to have a better life? You know, are you committed to having a better life? And she had the, she called it four pillars, but it was essentially the, the N-E-S in my nest. And she talked about that. Uh, I think she talked about eating real food. So, so I think, your goal should be more based on, do I have the behaviors of a healthy lifestyle? Am I walking towards a healthy lifestyle? Can I, you know, Dr. Um, uh, Jen Unwin and David Unwin in the UK, they talk about the GRIN acronym, you know, GOALS. What are my resources? Who's supporting me? Uh, incremental change and noticing. So so, are, am I noticing that I'm improving? Am I comfortable that I'm not at my goal, but I'm walking towards it? So. So it's really helping people to have this approach where they think big, it's like 30,000 feet in the air. I, I, I'm making progress. I'm not trying to be a supermodel, I'm not trying to go in the Wheaties box, but man, if I could just be healthier and have more energy and more mental clarity, maybe I'll be able to take care of my grandkids or hang with them better. Maybe I'll be able to go to the church if I'm a, in, in a church member. Maybe I'm able to go to the mall without being in pain. And as long as, and and the goal is I need to be better, but I don't need to be perfect. None of us will be, I'm 53, I'm not gonna be 23 again. So I don't have to be, have the body of a 23-year-old. I just need to know that, man, most 53-year-olds are not uh, taking care of themselves. And my goal as a clinician is to help as many of them realize you can take care of yourself. A lot of people say, I don't wanna live to hundred. You would if you felt good. You would if you had a little muscle mass to help you get through your day, you would if you had mental clarity and you didn't have to worry about dementia. We, we say that because we think aging is inevitable. Well, the number is, but how you feel, you don't have to feel old. And I have people playing golf and coming to a clinic by themselves is over a hundred years old. So we have to remove this myth that this whole aging process is an inevitable you know, diminishing of our life function. That's not really true. Is it going to be less than what it was? Sure. Is it going to be that person with the walker uh, bent over? No, that that doesn't have to be our destiny, but we do have to earn our way. So as we get older, we have to start earning our way through life. So so when I think about 53, if I make it to 106, the second half I got to (laughs) earn. It's not going to just happen by itself. So as long as I'm earning it, and I'm not overdoing it and I have balance and I have a sense of community, the chances that I'll get there is much greater. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like a client who works with you, for example, could work on, you know, their, their blood glucose levels. Um, they could work on, you know, maybe like their mindset or their thoughts and stuff like that. Or there's, there's a lot of different things that they could work on that would improve their health outside of, you know, their exercise habits that would improve their health outside of purely weight loss, but that actually might lead to weight loss. Indirectly as well. So
1: yeah, behaviors and then we'll, and I may put in my, uh, my notes, the, what are their goals? You know, what are you, what, what, where's your, again, ask the open ended question, the ores, or just simply, you know, I'm doing my problem solving. What's the problem? Doc, so I kind of struggle with uh, sweets. So what, is there a suite you'd be willing to try to give up between now and the next visit? And we let them, choose that and then they and it may be sweet tea. I'm gonna give up sweet tea dot And then they'll, oh, I didn't know sweet tea had nine teaspoons of sugar every time I drank it. I, they just didn't know. So so we'll, so we'll problem solve, work together It's a partnership. Some people take a couple of years to get it together. Some of my patients get off insulin in between visits. So it just depends on the individual, how motivated they are. And my job is not to, again, blame or demonize them if they're not on my schedule. And, and, they, and, then, and, and they come there understanding that's the focus. They come there not to get a refill and, and to figure out what medicine needs to be. They, they know that we're gonna talk about lifestyle uh, as the primary focus. And, and so they tend to come there with talking points around that because they already know. And if they've struggled, they'll say, I've struggled doc, but I'm ready now. And that's typically what I hear because they know that that is I've trained them to understand if we don't deal with these things, you won't heal. Good news is everybody wants to heal. They just can't heal if they just lost three family members to COVID over the last six months. It's just, I'm not expecting them to heal under those circumstances.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, oh, it's, it's uh, so tough. If you kind of don't accept the the circumstance you have um, because you can't really change anything then. Um, right. So you, you had a video the fastest way to reverse type 2 diabetes which is the, the most common form of diabetes um, and you talked a little bit about fasting so I you know from what I've learned is like a rigid approach to dieting there's potential eating disorders or risk for that and I know you know a lot of people who are listening will have heard of fasting and they'll be like oh it's the the best way to lose weight so i i you know I think fasting is is great when they use when it's used correctly um would you talk about maybe some of the risks and the benefits and just a little bit of information about fasting.
1: Yeah, well, I like, um, and again, we sh- shout out to Dr. Jason Fong for putting fasting on the radar of so many people. And when I wrote my Fix Your Diet, Fix Your Diabetes book, I, I shared with him that I did not add the fasting chapter till the very end when I realized it was the fastest way to reverse diabetes um, for obvious reasons, because you know, if you have too much, if you can't take care of the glucose or sugar in your blood, uh, because you're not able to process it. Maybe you're making tons of insulin, but you're insulin resistant. How about if we just remove the demand for uh, insulin? And you can do that easily if you stop eating, right? So there's no need to make insulin if you're fasting and your pancreas can take a break, recover and and, and help you along your way. So, so I think that for uh, most of us, um, not a lot of risk and fasting, there's a lot of metabolic changes that will occur. So there are things that you worry about, like, okay, um, keto, intermittent fasting will then lead to uh, your body, uh, you, know, getting, you know, getting rid of, you're going to remove those glycogen stores, which uh, in your liver and your muscle, and oh, that's going to make you urinate a lot. And, um, but when you're urinating and removing um things you're gonna you're gonna find your salt level may go down your magnesium level may go down your potassium level so some people take um some some of the minerals that they need uh it can be through something as simple as uh pickle juice you know or it can be uh some of the you know keto uh chow has uh electrolytes that's a company that sells so there's things you can do most people don't need to do any of that but it's just important when you have keto or a carbohydrate withdrawal, rather, you know, you're not eating or you're you're doing keto, you may feel uh, some kind of way, but most people get over that within days. If you look at the research of Dr. Eric Westman and things he talked about at Duke, uh, most people get over that within days. So it's not a big deal. It's just, you're going through withdrawal and you have to train your body how to burn fat as a fuel source, which you'll do whether you're fasting or doing keto. But I would definitely use some caution uh, and again, I mentioned earlier that I, I, you know, I have trained in obesity, but I just integrate it into my practice. So I don't have a lot of people coming to my practice with, uh, you know, disordered eating, uh, problems, you know? Um, but if you look at some of the studies that I learned, uh, while I was training for obesity, did talk about like, you know, um, journal of, uh, you know, abnormal psychology, for instance, I think. I don't know, in the early, like 2010, 2009, I'm not sure what year it was, but they talked about, you know, uh, using fasting um, in people who, you know, are, you know, bulimic and have binge eating problems. And, and there's definitely um, some risk with that. So it's not that they should never do uh intermittent fasting but it wouldn't be uh i don't know if it's necessary for them to do this so i think you have to individualize people understand how they got to where they are if they're if fat if not eating for extended periods, periods of time and then they binge and it may that may not be the best approach for that person because you may trigger them uh, to uh re, re, you know go back to that behavior so i so my general approach is I take the path of least resistance. Let's, let's do something that makes more sense for that person. So, so could they do even keto? And the answer is, of course they could, but you just have, because it'll hopefully take away their hunger, et cetera. But maybe they do keto without doing intermittent fasting. So I think you individualize it, see where people are, uh, understand if that's a potential trigger and uh, make sure they get help. Uh, Those types of patients probably should be seeing a behavioral health uh, provider as well, uh, who also can work collaboratively with you. Because they may come to you and say, I want to try this anyway, doc. So you have to maybe have a relationship with a professional who's also monitoring what they're doing, adjusting medicines if necessary, if they're on medicines, and you work collaboratively with those professionals so that you can keep people safe. Because the goal is to be... Be aware that this is a journey and we don't have to fix people in three months or six months or a year. We just want to be walking again towards the goal of helping them to remove those things that have harmed them and add the things that's going to help them.
0: Yeah, life is, is a journey and you're not going to be fixed in a year and then your work is done with your health, as you say, you know, if you want to live till 106, you're going to have to put the 53 years in um, and earn that. Um, so. Coming, coming kind of close to the end with there's three questions I want to just touch on. So um, you're a proponent of low carb and I'm a, more of a proponent of sort of, I guess, portion control would be my yeah. approach. So not kind of, I'd definitely be, you know, moderate to high protein, m- you know, moderate fat and, and definitely moderate carbs as well. But um, I wouldn't really kind of try to demonize carbs or say that there's anything yeah. wrong with them, even yeah. though I see a lot of you know, we agree on the processed foods are unhealthy and uh, they're a really big problem. So I see a lot of those foods are high in carbs. So um, would you just talk a little bit about your approach with the, the the low carb approach to to nutrition?
1: Yeah. Now I always have to do full disclosure. I'm biased because I used to be a vegetarian Isn't that ironic. <laughs> so I'm biased towards the idea that I've had that experience. I'm biased because I'm Uh, I tend to do more carb restriction and I do agree with you that, um, carb restriction, I mean, I eat carbs. I mean, I eat, you know, I did have mashed cauliflower last night. Um, and the reason why I tend to do more carb restriction versus, um, you know, um, encouraging that it's okay, um, is because if I have a diabetic who's having mashed potatoes, they just do much better. With uh, mashed cauliflower because it's four net carbs, I mean, four carbs versus um, maybe 30 plus carbs from the actual potato. So I think, could they eat a potato? Absolutely. I just want them to understand that that's going to require that they then consider what else are you eating for the day and not to minimize it. Uh, I think we're both on the same page in terms of uh, reducing calories and, you know, we're, you know, when you eat a, a low carb or a carb restricted diet, you're kind of portion redu- reducing just naturally now if i if you mentioned early, as I mentioned earlier, I don't eat breakfast so i'm i'm that's a whole meal I don't eat so i'm so I think what happens is uh it's a pretty effective way when you become a, a fat burner to reduce your portion size because you're not eating as much because you're full uh, and then I tend to encourage patients not to have things that uh will not satiate them so if they eat a steak or uh you know things like that they may be more satiated where they may not feel as full eating certain foods that doesn't get your leptin hormone to activate to make you feel full so now you everybody's different uh if i have skinny popcorn in the house i'm gonna want to keep eating skinny popcorn even nuts and seeds trigger me so So, what you do is you try to keep your triggers out of the home. The bigger thing for me is the data. So, uh, a lot of people are afraid of um, low carb because they hear studies that say meat's going to kill. If you just Google low carb versus low fat, um, um, there are studies that show it can cause an increased mortality. Uh, The problem with those studies is that they were all epidemiological observational studies, which simply means that people got surveys to their house, food frequency questionnaires. And then they saw there seems to be a correlation between a low carb diet and increased mortality. I have good news. The good news is that there are um, tons of studies. uh, And I would ask anybody listening to go to the public health collaborative, and just type in low carb studies public, they put this data together. If you look at um, my population, which is metabolically unhealthy in general, uh, there's about, uh, if you compare a significant weight loss with a low carb diet versus low fat, uh, it's 36 to 0. 36 uh, of the low carb studies beat the low fat studies. So it was 36 to 0. For a greater weight loss, it was 57 to, I mean, 58 to 7. So if you search that, uh, so there's, so people, you know, so why would I take one, Meta-analysis done with epidemiological studies, which doesn't show causation. It doesn't show cause and effect. It just shows association, correlation. And just to put it in perspective, an example of an epidemiological study was done, which looked at, um, you know, the fact that the divorce rate in Maine correlated to the amount of margarine you consumed. So that was an episode. So, and we can give you a hundred examples of how that's not. So what you do is you take the epidemiological studies, and if that's the only kind of study you do, you have to kind of use that information. But if you have like all these other studies that were double you know, randomized controlled trials that show that this, other, this low carb thing is pretty safe and effective, then you have to then delete the, the epidemiological study has no value at that point because the, you have to use the highest standard that we use in science. And that's what's perplexing to me as a clinician I can look at data, my colleagues can look at data, and how they still demonize meat and fat after knowing this data exists is perplexing. So either they don't want to see it or they have an agenda. I just don't understand how you can see this data and not then at least be able to say, although I'm going to lean towards this other approach, which is not low carb, I can't then i have to admit that for some people if that's what they want to do they can do it without harm because the data supports that so i think what we want to do is live in a world where people have options i just want uh just like the american diabetes association they're now saying low carb very low carbs are option that's all we're looking for that way rather you're vegan or carnivore you can do those things without and we need more data for carnivore let me say that out loud (laughs) but you just want To live in a world where we're not demonizing each other and fighting when we have data to help us make have intelligent discussion and there's other parts of that we'd have to talk about but i just wanted that's just my reason for leaning and by the way the last thing my patients, i I was vegan and vegetarian and i kind of went back and forth for eight years it's hard to get an african-american population to do that you can try it uh, my, one of my colleagues, Dr. Terry Mason, who I do something with Danny Davis every Monday night, it's called Couch Conversation with the Doctors on Facebook. Uh, you can try it, but it's hard to get people to not eat meat when that's their entire culture. So my thing is let's find a way to help them in that space and do it in a way that's safe. And, and, and the key is to eat real food, like Dr. Joanne uh, McManamy said in the video we did together. Let's eat real food first. If you do that, you're going to probably be okay.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something we agree on to avoid the the ultra processed food, uh, real food first. Um, And just, you know, I I, I'm a big fan of the NBA and I know Chris Paul, um, he recently went vegetarian or vegan. sure. yeah, and he's attributing a lot of his longevity to playing to that switch. Wow. Yeah. So personally, I would say that no diet is superior to another. I no. would say I would say it's just, you know, it's an individual uh, kind of approach that's going to suit a person best. And I think we get caught up in all these terms and demonizing foods and trying to be egotistical and right and wrong. It's like mm-hmm. doing more harm than good. But um, that's
1: right. And I agree. And I, and I think that's that's and, I, and I'm happy to hear you say that because if we message that and we are working collaboratively and we and we have ways to do this that may vary, but get you to the goal. We want people to have options. I have people. Last thing I'll say: Have patients who can't tolerate animals, and I have patients who can't tolerate. If you have some people eat, I'll eat a Brussels sprout and it literally upsets my stomach. So you know we have to be flexible enough to hear people and know they're not crazy. There are anti nutrients that don't bother one person in vegetables that bother the next person. So why would I then ask a person who can't tolerate the anti nutrients to consume a Brussels sprout? Doesn't make sense, and I wouldn't ask a a vegan who can't tolerate a steak that, oh, you need to eat that because you need protein. We need to find other ways to give them protein that won't harm them. So I think we have to be metabolically flexible
0: <laughs> in terms of how we approach patients. Yeah, and you know, protein's great, but then uh, you have stuff like protein bars and I don't tolerate them well. It's something I've read right. recently. So I need to yeah. avoid that, even though protein yeah. is, is good for me. Uh, Doctor, if you have time, would you be able to talk just a little bit about COVID and the booster shot? I know we just discussed that. Oh after. yeah. Yeah, I did get a booster shot and um,
1: I was you know, able to get it once it became available. Uh, obviously I'm a high risk individual, not because of my medical history, but because of the work I do and I do see patients. And so, um, you know, so so the bottom line is, you know, just from what they're recommending. Yeah. I mean, if you're over 65 and you're in a long-term care facility, you have underlying medical conditions, high risk setting, like I am in because of my profession, those people, you know, should, you know, um, I mean, I think they were saying eight months now they're saying six months apart, you know, that all makes sense. Um, would you be protected with the first two dosages? Uh, based on the studies I've read? Probably so. I mean, in terms of hospitalization, severe infection, death, those first two dosages, if you've gotten a vaccine, if that was your choice, it'll probably do pretty good. So I think they, and I think the reason why there was hesitation is when they started looking at the data, they saw, do we really need to do this booster? My hope was that the booster would be like a flu shot. What did they add to the previous to make it better for these variants, right? Now, what I've seen is that, I'm not sure they did that, sounds like it's just a third dose, right? So that makes you pause. So will it add additional protection? Absolutely, is it gonna be, so it's almost like, the way I look at it is this, it's almost like grass fed beef versus, you know, uh, factory farmed Is the grass fed gonna have some omega-3 D protection that the other did? Yeah. Is it, is it, is it negligible compared to salmon? Yeah. So do I spend twice as much money to get a, a slight improvement in my beef just because I'm looking for a mate? No, you eat some salmon, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't make sense. So I'm not sure the benefit is substantial enough for us to go crazy. Um, however, I think that everything should be taken in, as a whole, just like we wear a we social distance. And so if, you, if a person feels that that extra protection is gonna make them feel better, I think that that's reasonable. Is it? Is it something that um, absolutely should happen for everybody for sure? I don't know that that's, we're at that point yet based on the data I've read, but that will change because as we get more and more mutants, I think I just want a vaccine that addresses the mutations, right, better. And I'm not sure that the booster is gonna do that.
0: So, so. But I did get my third vaccine, so I have to, you know, full disclosure. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I think a lot of people, they kind of think the vaccine it's going to be the end you know it's going to be the cure and you know we still have the common cold that mutates every year so it's That's like right people need to be more trusting of the science and realize that it's uh it's it's not a it's, it's like a, a temporary solution and it's the best solution we have in the times we're in and people are just doing their best so you know trust in in uh in the science really
1: yeah, I, I dress and trust in the science. Some countries have had, you know, I one study I saw, and I, I wish I knew the country, but it was like 55,000 or so deaths, but only 1.2% of the people who died were uh, vaccinated. That means 98.8% were unvaccinated. I don't, you know, you don't have to be a doctor, scientist, mathematician to understand those numbers. So for me and my family, and, and, and again, my wife's dad has dementia, right? He lives with us. So I just want to reduce the risk that I'll come home with COVID, so that he won't get it. Who would uh, potentially have a greater negative impact? So, so I think again, we respect everybody's choice to choose, Um, but but we have to understand that we some of us take the risk mitigation to a higher level because we want to just reduce the chances a little bit more, and we have personal reasons for it. Again, I have a reason in my own home that makes me want to be even more cautious, and of course, my profession.
0: Yeah, me and my partner would be uh, high risk because of our profession. So when we're eligible for the third shot, we'll be getting that as well because of that. But, you know, some people work from home all the time and their risk is much lower. They're not around high risk population. And that's a reasonable consideration. Yeah. But yeah, I've taken enough of your time, doctor. Uh, Thank you very much. Is there anything you want to mention or plug or? Um, yeah, the, the people know I about. mean,
1: obviously the protecting your nest podcast is important to me. I think my biggest focus over the next year because people like videos, it's gonna be the YouTube channel. So anybody listening, if they enjoyed the content definitely subscribe to the YouTube channel, just Dr. Tony Hampton on YouTube, uh, that would be the key. And then of course the diet doctor, we got a column. So every month I write a column and they're, you know I don't need to reinvent the wheel. So I partner with them. And say, okay, you guys have all of this, you know, stuff that's related to carb restriction or whatever. I'll just write a column for you guys, and that way, I I don't need to do meal plans and stuff. I'll let them do that, and 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 so I think checking that out as well. It's called the low carb corner on the diet. If they type in low carb corner, they'll see it. So, but the YouTube channel is going to be the focus.
0: Brilliant! I look forward to to learning more um, from you, Tony. Um, so thanks very much, and uh, maybe we'll talk again soon. Absolutely, I
1: appreciate being here today.